Hello, everybody. Welcome yet to another episode of the Nailed Ortho Podcast. My name is Dr. Cole. Myself and Dr. Fit started this podcast to go over high yield orthopedic surgery topics. But you are now tuned into our OITE review featuring myself and Dr. Spencer Woolwine. And we are still on trauma. So if this is your first time listening to this podcast, welcome. We typically uh, traditionally did weekly episodes uh, featuring interviews from different orthopedic surgeons, which will return very shortly. But for now, you are now tuned into our OITE review. And so far in the month of July, we've gotten a good feedback as far as trauma is concerned. And we are continuing our trauma episode. So uh, please follow us on Instagram at Nailed It Ortho. Hit the subscribe button. And then after this episode, please leave a review in iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, however you listen to us. So without further ado, you are now listening to Nailed It, the orthopedic surgery podcast featuring doctors Jay Fitz and Wendell Cole. Now, uh, in young patients that have comminuted femoral neck fractures, where is the area of comminution most commonly seen? Yeah, and that's going to be in that posterior inferior portion of the neck. Um, and that's really the, the area like we alluded to before that is important to uh, make sure you stabilize with uh, at least one of your uh, three parallel screws. If you are going to open reduce these uh, is making sure that you could, you help control that uh, area of comminution. Um, but uh there's uh, data out there for everything, and there's ones that are comparing the sliding hip screw uh, versus uh, cannulated screw fixation. And is there a, a difference in the reoperation uh, rates for those for these patients? Yeah. So this is a this is a out of that that faith trial um, uh, that for you know looking at these 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 hip fractures and for those that are listening. Uh, you can listen to our episode with Dr. Harrison on femoral neck fractures to get a deeper dive into this, but there, there's no, uh, there has been no significant differences found in that study uh, in reoperation rates and patients that were treated with a high, with a sliding hip screw versus a cannulated screw fixation. Um, but they did note that patients with a displaced basic cervical neck fracture and current smokers may do better with a sliding hip screw uh, compared to cannulated screw fixation. So think of uh, displaced basic cervical neck fractures and smokers may do better with a, a, a sliding hip screw. And again, that, that FAITH trial, uh, if you want the full word, uh, the full title is called Fracture Fixation and the Operative Management of Hip Fractures, an International Multicenter Randomized Control Trial Fixation Using Alternative Implants for the Treatment of Hip Fractures. That's where FAITH actually comes from, fixation of the alternative implants for the treatment of hip fractures. And this is uh, this was published in 2017. So definitely go and, and take a look at that article. Um, but, you know, so what 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 is associated with improved outcomes for young patients with displaced uh, femoral neck fractures? Yeah, and that's going to be associated uh, with the quality of the reduction. You want to make sure that that is as anatomic as possible. Um, and uh, it they these are the patients that you're going to do that anterior approach with a capsulotomy to make sure that uh, you're getting direct visualization of that femoral neck fracture. You're clamping it with a Weber clamp or uh, 
provisional plate uh, prior to either your uh, three cannulated screws or your sliding hip screw. Um, but yeah, remember it's the quality of the reduction and not necessarily the time to reduction, even though you do still want to get to these patients uh, in a in an urgent manner, uh, you want to make sure that the quality is is good. Um, and like uh, we all know uh, and have all been told by numerous attendings, whether they are <laughs> trauma, arthroplasty, or anything else, what is the one major uh, reduction flaw that you want to avoid? Yep, thou shalt not varus. So you would, uh, if you are fixing these femoral neck fractures, you want to avoid a varus reduction because these are going to be associated with increased failure rates uh, for femoral neck fixation. Now, now, what's the common complication after you know open reduction internal fixation of the femoral neck? Yep, even if you do everything right, you get to them within a couple of hours. You have an excellent quality of reduction. You are high-fiving yourself and your team after the surgery. You're, <laughs> you're still following these patients for upwards of two years to make sure that they do not develop AVN. That is the common theme here. It's not an intraarticular fracture. It's not a, a, a something that's going to really lead to a lot of post-traumatic arthritis. It's really that AVN for the femoral neck. Um, and let's say... Uh, they do start to collapse into varus. Uh, what's the uh, what's the treatment algorithm there? Yeah, so if you you know if you have a young active patient and they have this varus this varus um, femoral neck nonunion, a treatment option for them is going to be a valgus intertrochanteric osteotomy to help correct some of that varus, bring them into some of valgus. Uh, now we we've touched on fixation. We touched on. Um, uh, a sliding hip screw, and we've touched on uh, cannulated um, screw fixation and some of the, you know, the quality reduction being, you know, the most important thing uh, for these patients with these displaced femoral neck fractures to improve outcomes. Now, in what patients with femoral neck fractures is hemiarthroplasty going to be indicated? Uh, yeah, so those are going to be the displaced, non-valgus impacted uh, fractures in low-demand, uh, low-functioning patients, um, and it's really related to uh, an ease of the surgery. It's a less invasive. It's a shorter surgery. It's um, It has a little bit less risk of a dislocation compared to total hips uh, just because of that larger jump distance you get with a larger femoral head within a, a hemiarthroplasty. Um, it's still up for debate as to which one is clinically more superior, uh, I think. I don't think that that's really been hammered out in a lot of the uh, studies. Um, but uh, uh, one other uh, controversial topic is if you do stick with a hemiarthroplasty, um, are you going to be doing uh, a bipolar versus a unipolar uh, hemi for your femoral neck patients. Yeah, just like you said, those are um, pretty, you know, the results are controversial uh, for the most part. But I, I think, you know, at least right now, there are many studies that do show that they have similar outcomes. So, again, controversial results, but, you know, they bipolar and unipolar hemi have similar outcomes at the end of the day. Uh, now, what about, you know, we talked about hemi. Now we talked about uh, the high points we talked about are 
for hemiarthroplasty or low demand patients, lower risk of dislocation, similar outcomes between bipolar and unipolar. Now, is there any difference between cemented versus non-cemented hemiarthroplasty for these femoral neck fractures? So I, I think that it's still the the kind of in quote gold standard uh, for the femoral neck is to be a cemented uh, hemiarthroplasty just because that's what's been done for a number of years. Uh, but for uh, the patients with the uh, door C type proximal femurs or the stovepipe uh, proximal femurs, um, a cemented uh, implant is going to be superior uh, just because it's going to it's harder to fill and to provide stability uh, with an uncemented implant. Um, but you do get a, a higher risk of the cardiopulmonary complications with the pressurization of the cement. So it it doesn't come without its own kind of cons uh, associated with it. But um, I think it I think there's more of a transition towards non-cemented press fit uh, style implants in patients that don't have these stovepipe type femurs, and it's really just because of the complications associated with the cement. Um, yeah, but. Uh, moving from hemi, uh, let's say you're, uh, you've either done your arthroplasty fellowship and you're just taking trauma call at a uh, level two or three hospital, uh, what patients um, with femoral neck fractures are you going to consider doing a total on? Yeah, so these are going to be our active older patients that have displaced femoral neck fractures, typically our garden threes and our garden fours, as well as any patients that have pre-existing osteoarthritis. And, you know, there are multiple studies that show, or there, there are definitely, there are a lot of different studies that show that, you know, total hip arthroplasty is associated with improved functional outcomes compared with hemiarthroplasty and internal fixation in these displaced femoral neck fractures. And if you want to read about this a little bit more, there's actually an article that was uh, published in 2004 in the Clinical Orthopedic Related Research called Total Hip Arthroplasty, semicolon, or colon, Optimal Treatment for Displaced Femoral Neck Fractures in Elderly Patients by Healy et al. In case you were wondering what the uh, the, the article is about, it is clearly uh, <laughs> outlined in the uh, title. Again, that's going to be total hyparthroplasty, Optimal Treatment for Displaced Femoral Neck Fractures in Elderly Patients. And again, one of the things that you talked about a little bit earlier with hemiarthroplasty is that hemiarthroplasty was associated with a decreased dislocation rate compared to total hip arthroplasty. So the contrary is total hip arthroplasty is associated with an increased dislocation rate uh, versus a hemiarthroplasty, but still improved functional outcomes compared to hemiarthroplasty and internal fixation. Now, what, uh, what are some factors I know we talked about a little bit earlier, patients that have femoral neck fractures undergoing or having osteonecrosis or some AVN, but what are some uh, factors uh, associated with the increased risk of osteonecrosis in patients that have femoral neck fractures? Yeah, so it's really just anything that disrupts the blood supply. So a higher axial uh, loaded injury with increased initial fracture displacement and a poor reduction. If you're uh, still having the uh, kinked lateral retinacular vessels from that medial femoral circumflex um, or just a, a really a disruption of those lateral retinacular vessels from the uh, increased in initial fracture displacement is going to uh, be associated with that increased risk of uh, osteonecrosis of that femoral head. 
Um, and, uh, the kind of downer to treating femoral neck fractures is having to really discuss, uh, with the patients and their families, uh, their overall mortality risk and, and what to expect in the next year after, uh, femoral neck fractures. And so what is that one year mortality rate? Yeah, that's right at about 30%. So roughly one in three patients that have, one in three elderly patients that have uh, these femoral neck fractures, um, that is that is the rate of mortality. So that is also, you know, something that you should discuss with your patients or they always tend to have questions about, um, about you know, mortality and kind of what, what we're looking at in the future. And, you know, that's something that you can, you can let them know about. Um, and, and kind of just moving forward. And I think we've covered most of, at least for femoral necks, but there's a lot more to the hip and now we're moving a little bit down and, and lateral. Uh, let's talk about some inner chokes. So we talked about an ideal time frame for fixing femoral neck fractures, but what about, what's an ideal, uh, time frame um, for surgery in patients with inner choke enteric femur fractures? Yep. Uh, so similar thing, it's just, pretty much along the lines of a femoral neck, just considered a hip fracture. So you want to make sure you get to uh, surgery within 24 to 48 hours for these patients as well. Um, the uh, <clears throat> medical co-management, like I talked about before, it does improve outcomes um, and it and optimizing some of these patients, making sure that they are not uh, severely anemic or uh, that they're not suffering from uh, an acute uh, kidney injury or something like that, they will have an improved outcome, but sometimes you can't improve everything and a higher initial uh, ASA level uh, is going to predict mortality. So the kind of the sicker the going into the surgery, the sicker they are going to come out of it, um, unfortunately. But um, when we're talking about intertrochs, we have stable intertrochs and we have unstable ones which uh, I think it's more beneficial to focus on the unstable ones. What are some of the uh, uh, unstable intertroch fact, femur fracture uh, characteristics? Yeah, so, you know, these are going to be patients that have lateral, lateral wall blowout, right? So you don't really have you don't really have anywhere to put your DHS plate if the lateral wall is blown out. Um, patients that have reverse obliquity because the, the fracture line uh, orientation is, is one that it will displace and, the, and typically will fail with a DHS um, plate or screw. Um, any patients that have posterior medial comminution, we know that's where kind of that strongest bone is. So um, that's another one. And then, and then subtrochanteric extension. So again, um, things of Note for unstable intertrochanteric femur fractures, lateral wall blowout, reverse obliquity, posterior medial comminution, and subtrochanteric extension. Uh, fractures of the lesser and greater trochanteric can also just be can also be like markers of instability. But classically, it's it's kind of those four that we just mentioned: the lateral wall blowout, reverse obliquity, the posterior medial comminution, and the subtroch extension. Now, for a stable intertrochanteric femur fracture. What is the implant of choice for that? Uh, I was, I guess, quote, lucky enough to uh, be able to do this recently, but a stable intertroke is one that does have that stable lateral wall. You can do a sliding hip screw. I haven't used the sliding hip screw in a while, so it was kind of exciting to be able to do one of those uh, differently than a just a standard cephalomedullary nail. Um, there is 
uh, no difference between two and four whole plates uh, in the studies out there. And because of that, we decided on a three whole plate uh, just to kind of <laughs> <Nice. laughs> kind of go in the middle of that. And uh, my uh, my attending um, and this is purely anecdotal, not based on evidence really at all, but his thought on the uh, uh, kind of determining whether to use a two, three, or four hole plate is um, he, he avoids using two hole plates just because you do want to screw fixation through the plate. And uh, if one of those screws is just not quite the bite you're looking for, uh, then you're really relying on one screw to hold that plate on um, versus the ability to kind of redirect the screw or, or choose a different hole in the three or four hole plate. So purely anecdotally based, it, it will change my personal practice that I will choose three and four hole plates just because you do have those kind of extra screw hole uh, options. But uh, there to know for the test, no difference between a two hole plate or a four hole plate. Um, but uh, the probably the more highly tested and, and important fact is something called a tip to apex distance. And, and uh, what what is that? Yeah. So the tip to apex distance, you know, this is a highly tested question. But, you know, what you want to look at is this is pretty much the number of millimeters on an AP and a lateral hip film added together. So you look at the distance from the tip of the screw to the subcontral bone, and you measured it again on an AP and a lateral, and you want that to be less than 25 millimeters. Um, a tip apex distance greater than 25 millimeters is associated with implant failure and cutout. So again, you want that tip apex distance to be less than 25 millimeters because this is associated with the lowest screw failure rate and, and then when you're doing these, you kind of want that screw to be center, center, or some people will say a little inferior, but most people say center, center. And if you uh, are a fan of this podcast, we have a recent episode with Dr. Sanders, if you want to dive a little bit deeper into intertrochanteric femur fractures. Um, but let's say, for example, if you're fixing unstable intertrochanteric femur fracture with a DHS screw, or uh, what are some of the common uh, complications. And we just spoke a little bit earlier about what makes these fractures unstable. Yeah. So the, uh, what's going to happen is that plate is going to be fixed to the shaft, uh, securely with the, uh, screws. And because that, uh, dynamic hip screw is allowed to compress when you don't have a stable lateral wall, that compression is just going to kind of continue as far as it pleases and you're going to get medialization of the shaft and a uh, excess lateralization of the proximal femur on top of that dhs so um that is really that lateral femoral uh cortex buttress is is the key part to being able to use a dhs versus an intramedullary nail and there are some and probably many surgeons out there that they just don't even use that hip screw anymore. They just go straight to a nail because it's reproducible. It's uh, it can be used in stable and unstable fracture patterns. And it's uh, kind of a, a little bit easier of a procedure, but 
that's kind of to each their own. So uh, going along that same lines, uh, we do know that intertrochanteric fractures have a reverse obliquity component to them on some instances. Is a cephalomedullary or a, a DHS useful for those? No, pretty much uh, kind of what you're saying with that reverse obliquity, you know, these are, those fractures will kind of shear off. And um, so for these, typically the treatment of choice is going to be a cephalomedullary nail. And again, you know, if you think about what reverse obliquity is, if you have a line that goes, a fracture line that goes in between your lesser and greater trochanter, that is kind of, I guess you could call it normal obliquity. But if it was reverse of that, and the line is, uh, and that fracture line is 90 degrees to that, that would be called reverse obliquity. And you can see how, if you picture in your head, how that, um, how that kind of shearing force uh, will make this fracture unstable. So uh, most people use cephalomedullary nails. Other options you can use to treat these unstable femoral fractures with reverse obliquity are fixed angle devices. You know, some people use blade plates. Um, some people use proximal femoral locking plates. So those are other options. Um, we have we have harped on this, but let us continue to harp on this. What is the treatment of choice for these unstable intertrochanteric femur fractures? Yeah, and, and, that and that a little bit of here. more about them. Yeah, so that's going to be the cephalomedullary nailing. And I was just uh, kind of refreshing my brain. Uh, for that lateral wall, um, you want to look for a 20 millimeter width of that lateral wall to consider it to be stable uh, versus an unstable one is less than 20 millimeters or a clear fracture through that lateral wall. That's just a kind of a uh, uh, brief point about what makes that lateral wall stable versus not. But um, moving on to cephalomedullary nails, um, you do have the options of short cephalomedullary nails uh, versus long. And the short ones, uh, they are associated with uh, fractures around the tip of the nail uh, after uh, the procedure because you're really providing a lot of extra stabilization to the top third of the femur. Uh, and if they do have another injury down the road, there is going to be a little bit of a stress riser in that area, whereas the long cephalomedullary nails are associated with anterior cortex perforation and how they're going to test that is uh, by telling you that you are using a nail that has a larger radius of curvature, meaning it is a more straight nail than the anatomic characteristics of the person's femur, you're going to cause anterior cortex perforation. And uh, uh, the argument for short versus long is that there's similar outcomes uh, in both. And so, uh, if there's similar outcomes using a short versus a long, I, I don't think that uh, that's a, a huge difference. Just know that there are a little bit different uh, complications that you can see from them. Uh, but if you decide to, to go old school with it and use a proximal femur locking plate, uh, what sort of complications are you seeing with those? Yeah. So, you know, these are going to be these, if you use these proximal femur lock in place, you know, these are associated with uh, failure uh, fix of the fixation. Uh, you know, some of these proximal femur lock in plates don't have the best track record if you go back and look at some of the studies. Um, but so, yeah, you know, fixation failure is one of the complications as well as varus malalignment. And I know we 
talked a little bit about it earlier, thou shalt not Varus. So again, the complication scenes with the use of proximal femoral locking plates are going to be uh, fixation of the uh, fixation failure as well as various malalignment. Now, what are some complications seen with the use of uh, fixed angle plates? You know, like uh, uh, you know blade plates. Uh, you know, like a ninety-five degree blade plate or something like that mm -hmm. for using these uh, unstable uh, intertrochanteric femur fractures. Uh, yeah, so the the thing about these blade plates is they actually um, they don't have the, quite the same angles as a uh, dynamic hip screw or a cephalomedullary nail with the kind of 130 degree and 135 degree options that are more anatomic to the femoral uh, neck shaft angle. But they are, like you said, they're like a 95 degree angle blade plate where uh, the the plate itself is already in varus compared to the anatomic uh neck shaft angle so you're going to have an increased risk of cut out uh non-union because the uh fractures aren't necessarily uh sliding or compressing along that plate because they're not anatomically uh situated and then also implant uh failure or breakage at that uh kind of angle there um, so a lot of times these are used for, um, like non-unions or, uh, if you need to do like an osteotomy associated with it, but, um, you can consider them on the, in the index surgery, just know that there is a, an increased risk of some cutout in non-union, unfortunately. Um, yeah. but let's, uh, kind of going from the inner troke, uh, moving on to, a uh, little bit further down the bone, the subtroke region. Um, we uh, all seen the x-rays. We know that there are deforming forces. Uh, how, how are these deforming forces uh, situated around the, the proximal femur? Yeah, so if we're you know we're talking about subtroke um, fractures, and these these are going to be fractured within five centimeters from the lesser troke, and the de the typical kind of deforming forces. And they always ask these questions. I've always seen them, or either either it's always on the test or tenning's always asked. But anyways, you should know them. Uh, but the proximal fragment is going to go into flexion because iliopsoas. It's going to go into abduction. Uh, an external rotation because of the gluteal muscles as well as the short external rotators of the hip. The distal fragment is going to go into adduction and shortening because of the adductors. So knowing your deforming forces can let you know kind of what forces you have to overcome in order to you know obtain a good fracture reduction. Now, talking about these subtrochanteric femur fractures, what is a fracture pattern that's going to be seen in bisphosphonate associated subtrochs? Yes, so you are going to see uh, that kind of subtroke region lateral cortex uh, thickening or beaking uh, and that's going to kind of clue you into a more transverse orientation and medial spike uh, pathologic fracture of these uh, bisphosphonate associated fractures and um, you're gonna the the downside to them is even though they are transverse in nature and you can get good compression, axial compression with weight bearing, they are in patients that are on bisphosphonates. So we know that they already have kind of poor bone quality to begin with and also uh, poor uh, bony remodeling and turnover because of the uh, bisphosphonate that they're on. So you're going to have prolonged healing times. 
a little bit higher chance for uh, non-union. And these are also the patients that you want to make sure you're getting a, a, an x-ray of the contralateral limb and seeing if they do have that cortical beaking on the contralateral limb and asking them if they have pain on the, on the other side. If, uh, and if they do, then you want to consider prophylactic nailing just because that is associated with improved outcomes compared to those that have already fractured. Um, yeah. So uh, what, what is the typical treatment for these subtrochs? Yeah, so typical treatment for these is, you know, these are going to be uh, cephalomedullary nailing. That is, that is the, you know, the most, um, the most uh, often treatment for these. And sometimes open reduction can be needed as well. And you know, the the uh, the apex anterior and varus angulation are going to be the most common deformities are going to be seen to subtrochanteric femur fractures, and a varus malreduction leads to increased mechanical stress on the fixation uh, on the fixation construct. So you definitely want to again make sure you avoid varus as, as much as you can. Um, medial cortex comminution kind of increases the demand of uh, of the fixation uh, construct. So you know you got to note that if you have any of these subtrochanteric femur fractures and you see that that medial uh, the medial cortex is comminuted, you're going to know that that construct is going to take a lot of a lot of load um, a, a lot of load and increase uh, demand secondary to all that comminution. So you want to make sure you have a a stable implant and try to avoid a varus malreduction. Now, if you have a sub, uh, it seems like a more s- simple question, but if you have a subtrochanteric femur fracture where one of the fracture lines exits directly through the piriformis fossa, should you use a piriformis entry nail? And uh, yeah, like you said, the obvious answer to that is no. And uh, kind of the reasoning for that is uh, as you insert that piriformis nail into the piriformis fossa and there's a fracture line there, it's going to cause more of a log splitter uh, displacement rather than uh, being able to concentrically ream through that fracture. It's going to just want to displace. And so your your final fixation is going to displace from superior to inferior and cause a varus malreduction there. Um, and one one thing to kind of pass along to those listening is it's really tough to kind of explain why these subtroke femur fractures have a higher risk for this varus malreduction. And it's one of those that go and ask an attending, go and ask a senior resident that, that understands this concept that um, if you're trying to uh, use a more lateral entry for these fractures, uh, just know that it will result in that kind of medial collapse and varus angulation deformity there. So uh, you'll probably hear a lot of your attendings talk about a kind of a trochiformis start, meaning you are going to move your uh, starting point or your guide pin from the tip of the greater trochanter to a little bit more medial if you're using a true cephalomedullary device. And what that's going to do is it's going to just kind of cause more of a valgus 
uh, force on the fixation to prevent that various deformity. But again, it's it's hard to explain through a podcast, and it's uh, easier kind of understood when you're looking at x-rays and talking to people in person. So uh, if you do not understand why they go into varus, make sure you ask somebody before your next case uh, of a subtrope femur fracture. Thank you all for listening to this trauma episode. We uh, talked a little bit about femoral necks and some proximal femur uh, fractures. So we hope you guys enjoyed it this is your first time listening, please hit that subscribe button and then do us a favor and tell one friend. Tell just one friend or co-resident, fellow, uh, fellow attending or colleague. Uh, please, we are trying to get the word out about this OITE review. And of course, also just get the word out about our podcast. So without further ado, we will see you all next week.